So we are um, continuing in our study of Luke, and it's, it wasn't my idea to pick this passage. It just happened to be in the, um, in the, in the order of things that, uh, as Leonard l- last week preached on um, through verse 36 of, of um, Luke chapter 11, I'm just going to pick that up and, and continue through, through verse 3 of chapter 12. But if you remember... What happened last week is that um, uh, Jesus is dealing with skeptics and other uh, opposers, as well as those who are indifferent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lest we forget that, um, lest we forget that there are there are those that perish in the way, as it were, that aren't sort of the religious leaders. We need to be reminded that. Anybody who is indifferent to or has not Christ to be able to save them is is lost already because we're under the wrath and condemnation of God. But I think it's really easy to it's really easy to to laser in on the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees uh, because we assume that well that's that's what that's whom Jesus was angry with, right? And it, they're not the only ones he's angry with, but there is. There is a particular laser focus because they present the most opposition to him because, as it were, they, they kind of re- represent the focal point of the fact that, that rabbinic religion at the time of Christ was completely pointed in the opposite direction of the Messiah and the gospel in terms of what he was about. And so, in that sense, it's a very sharp rebuke. But it's not a rebuke just for them, but it's also something that we need to take heed of as we uh, look, uh, as we open the scriptures together. And so if you would rise for the reading of God's word, I'm going to be reading um, through uh, verse 44, and then we'll continue. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he had not first washed. Um, he had not for um, he did not first wash before dinner, and the Lord said to him, "Now you Pharisees cleanse the the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you were full of dead and or you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not the the one who made the the uh, the outside make the inside also, but give, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and you you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Please be seated. So we'll continue on as we, we go through this. So, um, so literally Jesus is kind of having this conversation. He's telling people about the fact that people um, will oppose him. 
people will um, neglect him. This conversation is going on, and then a Pharisee is listening, and the Pharisee invites Jesus to, to dine with him. He invites him into his house to, to have dinner. Now, who knows exactly what the reason was? It could have just been curiosity. It could have just been um, hospitality. Maybe he, he liked some of the things he was saying. And so Jesus goes and reclines at table, which is the, the, the standard way that people would would have a meal together, they would actually, um, you know, they wouldn't sit at the table with chairs. They would actually have a table and then they would have these cushions and they would be kind of lying and then reclining. So he wasn't just kind of like decided to kick back or something. That's just the way that they, they um, enjoyed a meal together. And so the Pharisee, um, the Pharisee is shocked. He's basically astonished that what Christ has done is just reclined at table to eat, and he hasn't, he hasn't washed himself. Now, it's not as if the reason he's astonished is like, you know, like um, I'm sometimes astonished with my teenagers, or I used to be, because some of them are getting better. All of them are getting better now. But I used to be astonished with some of my kids because they wouldn't bathe, and it was astonishing how bad they smelled or something like that. It wasn't that he said, like, hey, I can't believe that you came to dinner, like, smelling that way. Um, it was more of a ceremonial thing. And, and, and on that front, it wasn't even a ceremonial, it wasn't even a law commanded in the scriptures. It was something that was a, a tradition, a, a rule that had been placed in addition to what the scriptures said as a way to obey the law. And so the Pharisee is actually, in one sense, um, it, it thinks that Jesus is violating something that, that almost God has, has um, established. In this this sets Jesus off. I don't want to use the word triggered because it makes Jesus seem as if he's just flying off the handle. That's not what happened. It's not like Jesus just loses it or something like that. This is a, this is a prophetic um, and righteous anger against the establishment, as it were. And when I say establishment, I don't mean that Jesus is just against powers, as it were, that, you know, sometimes we get the sense, um, have you guys ever heard that, you know, kind of like what, you know, when, when people want to condemn Christians, they're always like, well, Jesus was for the poor and the needy, and he was kind of against the establishment, so to speak. Um, it's not quite that simple. It's not as if Jesus was kind of dealing with um, systemic issues of like power and, and power dynamics and that sort of thing. He was dealing with he was dealing with the fact that here he was coming to save sinners, and what he's dealing with is a system of 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 teaching that was 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 using the scriptures, but then kind of departing from them. And in the process, it was actually so distorting the scriptures themselves as to what God had commanded, as well as how God had um, had established that he would be uh, that man would be reconciled with them with with people that it was. It was messing it all up, and Christ was had come to reveal, as it were, true religion in Himself. And these these people who had kind of like um, who were the paragons of this system were basically the ones that were the target because they were the ones that were sort of the gatekeepers. They were the ones that were were doing that. But people could 
participate in this and still be lost, as it were. Does that make sense? So, so, so in one sense, it's not like it's a power dynamic, but the people who are most responsible for the, the, the maintenance and the propagation of the systems are the ones that are going to be kind of the, the target of him. And so this is where he kind of starts out. And um, he goes through six woes. And the first one is more of a, a, um, a, a, uh, an identification that what the Pharisees are like is they're like people who have a clean cup on the outside, but they're, it's full of filth on the inside. Um, it's as if somebody had kind of left food in a, in a dish um, in their room or something like that. This is all theoretical, obviously. But, um, and it was all like nasty and stuff like that from, from, from uh, you know, days of not being used. And then, you know, you basically just take the outside of the, the dish and then you put it there and you start putting food on it. It's disgusting, right? And that's exactly what the Pharisees are like. They have all of these external um, rites that seem as if they're, they're cleaning themselves, they're, they're cleansing themselves in righteousness, but they're actually on the inside, they're still filthy. They're still, they're still um, unrighteous. They think that they're righteous because externally they look okay. They look really good, but they are um, internally, they are, are wicked. And so he starts out with his first woe and he says, you tithe mint and cumin, but you neglect uh, justice and love. And what he's, what he's saying here basically is, or actually it's mint and rue, um, I don't know what rue is. It's a type of, of herb. But herb gardens are very small, but you get a lot of you get a lot of pro, you get a lot of use out of herbs because you don't have to use a lot of herbs to basically um, you know season your food. But the point is is that this Pharisees were very were very strict about uh, obeying the tithes. Um, and Christ doesn't rebuke them for tithing. But the point is is that they're so focused on um, as it were, uh, kind of like details of like, I've got to do this. Like, as long as I do this, as long as I meet the requirements of the law, then I can neglect other things, right? I can, <clears throat> I can, as it were, keep myself busy with all of the steps that I'm doing for righteousness. But then when it comes to justice, and um, maybe I have a business practice in which I'm um, uh, exploiting the poor, or I'm not providing mercy to others when I have opportunity, I can use these, these steps that I'm taking, um, keep myself busy with steps, and neglect other things that have to do with how I treat others around me. It's not an either-or thing. It's not as if Jesus is saying, stop tithing altogether. Um, but the point is, you're so busy worrying about like, you know, a tenth of a tenth of a percent that you're not even thinking about these other kinds of things. It's just an indication of the way in which the system had kept them so busy with the, 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 the things that seem externally important that they're forgetting kind of the weightier matters of that. I think that, um, you know, I can tread on some really, uh, I can step on some toes, as it were, in our own, um, in our own uh, world, because I think sometimes we we tend, to, we tend to sometimes, in our own circles, focus on certain things, as it were, um, you know, I'll, I'll deal with uh, people in the Reformed 
uh, communion, so to speak, that are really kind of anxious all the time about sort of like how um, politics is being accomplished according to certain kingdom views about whether God, the Lord is Lord of, 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 of you know, government and that sort of thing, which he is. But then the issue is like, how, how busy should the church be in making sure that righteous requirements of the law get enacted into laws? And so people spend all their time, as it were, so focused on kind of what the government should be doing that when it comes to issues of what the church should be doing. It's like, yeah, but I'm focused on this. I remember talking to this one man a while back where he was kind of complaining about um, the fact that the pastor never spoke enough about um, some, you know, political issues from the pulpit. And he, and he, he was always focused on the gospel. And I said, well, I think it's important to hear the gospel pretty regularly because we tend to forget the gospel. And uh, he said, I don't. I was like, wow, you don't forget the gospel, huh? Okay, well, good. You got that check mark. In some ways, it's almost like I've got this taken care of. Like, But the important thing is like that we're dealing with injustice. No, the important thing is actually that the gospel is transforming lives. And there are other things that we kind of talk about and, and lead to those sorts of, that lead to uh, how people act and how people conduct their lives. But you notice that we don't spend a lot of time dealing with certain things that may be important in terms of how you live that out because we want to kind of work with you in the discipleship process and we're not going to put those front and center all the time as to whether or not you're kind of checking all the boxes, that you've got every worldview thing aligned, whether or not you're doing everything um, that, that somebody who is completely consistent with the Christian faith would be doing. It's not to say that some of those things may or may not be important, but we try and keep the center thing center, if that makes sense. And the, and, and the Pharisees didn't. They were, they were focused on other things. They were focused on, you know, well, tithing, meat, and cumin. So then he says, um, you crave the best seats in the synagogue, and greetings of respect in the street. Um, you know, it's really easy to uh, pretend that you're, you're, you're actually being humble uh, when, you know, you're just like, oh, stop, you know, stop, stop saying, yeah, thank you for saying I'm so righteous. I appreciate it. Or, hey, why don't you sit in the front seat in the synagogue? Of course, back then people wanted to be in the front. Here we can't get, you know, we couldn't pay people to do that. So you're like, the the best seats in the church are in the back, you know? Um, but the point is, is that they want, they craved that. They, they really enjoyed that. They, they might not have said it out loud, but in their hearts, they did that. And they enjoyed the, the titles of respect as people walked by because the Pharisees were not um, Dick Dastardly. And only you old people know exactly what I'm talking about. Dick Dastardly. They're, they're not like, they're not cartoon villains. They don't, they're not easily picked out from the crowd. Like, oh yeah, there's a Pharisee right there. Of course, he's got the, the black hat and the really long mustache and everything. They were respected members of the community. They were well-respected because they were serious about the law. They actually applied that. And they were, they were, um, uh, they were greeted for that, where, the, where people would m- mostly try and keep, um, keep religious uh, things. They were sort of like uh, flabby religiously, and the Pharisees had six-pack abs of righteousness, you know? And so people were like, man, hey, good to see you, kind of thing, like, hey, you know? And so they were cool. They were, they were respected, and they enjoyed that respect. Um, uh, next, he says, you were like... Uh, 
You are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing. And now that seems kind of weird, like, well, how, how does that work, okay? Remember, um, contact with a dead body was considered to defile you um, ceremonially, and so what people would do during, during um, feasts is that, you know, it's not like they had headstones back then. They would, they would bury their dead, um, and then they would, they would, during these feasts, they would go and kind of trim around that, and then they would kind of like put some white paint over the tomb so that as people were walking by, they didn't walk over a grave unknowingly and defile themselves ceremonially. Does that make sense? It's actually kind of a nice thing to do, right? It's, hey, I don't want you to accidentally walk over a grave. And here are the Pharisees. Jesus is actually saying, <coughs> you guys are so defiled that people are going by you, and they think that they're going by somebody clean, but you're so unrighteous that you're, you're defiling people by your wickedness, right? Ah, Jesus, meek and mild, never said a mean thing to anybody, you know? I think that's what people probably imagine, is that Jesus would never do this. In fact, um, this is probably how the conversation was going. Everybody's sitting there, and then he starts unloading on them, and they're like, they're kind of looking at their shoes, or their sandals, maybe, and they're like, the nerve of this guy. Are you kidding me? Like, people are clearing their throats going, you're in a person's home, and you're totally, like, ragging on the Pharisees. This is horrible. In fact, in fact, at that point, um, one of the dinner guests, who is a lawyer or a scribe, speaks up. He says, one of the lawyers, starting, uh, continuing in verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, "Uh, teacher, in saying these things, you, uh, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not um, touch the burden with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you... Uh, consent to the deeds of your your fathers, uh, for they killed them, and you uh, you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, "I will send them peoples, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the peoples should." Um, I'm sorry, so that all the so that the blood of all the prophets shed from, from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to uh, provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So, I, I don't know exactly if it's like this, but it's almost kind of, in one sense, it's, it's cosmically funny because the scribe basically says, you know you're insulting us also. 
And it's almost like Jesus says, oh, yeah, well, let me unload on you too. Like, thanks for reminding me to not leave out the scribes as well, because you're also under a curse as well. Remember, when kids, when I'm saying woe, I'm not like, whoa, that's not what he's saying. Or he's not saying, whoa. He's saying, whoa, it's an oracle of doom. This is the prophet of prophets, a, an oracle of doom against these people, against the scribes and the Pharisees. And the things he's saying are serious. There's, there's things that God, when he says you're blessed, that's a great thing. You can smile. You have the blessing of God. You have the peace of God upon you. That's a thing that you know you can take to the bank because God is, is your friend. But when you have the woe of God upon you, it causes it, it should cause you to become undone and repentant so that you might be blessed by him. In fact, that's true religion that God provides in addition to God provides those who are truly prevent, pre- repentant grace when we recognize we're under the judgment of God. But Jesus is laying into them because they need to be warned. He comes up with this fourth um, woe of his um, conversation here, and he says, You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not uh, touch the bur- burdens uh, with with one of your fingers. The it's almost like the law is hard enough, especially if you're totally missing the boat, okay? This is the problem is that the law was always intended to serve as a guide for those who understood themselves to already have been redeemed by God. I am, your, I am the God who brought you out of slavery, now out of gratitude obey these things, and I've provided a means of sacrifice, which, which we all understand, and the people who looked with faith ought to have seen that there would have been somebody um, to whom these sacrifices would eventually take away um, the, the guilt of their sin. But they trusted in these signs of the old covenant, the, the um, sacrifices, the um, circumcision, other things that, that showed them that God was gracious, that it wasn't all about obedience. But here the... the the scribes who were basically the ones who had supposedly studied the law, and it's sort of like if I've got this big book and I don't read, it's almost as if you've got somebody trying to, um, you're, you're relying upon them to teach you, right? And, the, and, and they're giving all the wrong answers. In fact, they're not only telling you the, way, the wrong way in which to understand the law of God, but now they're adding all sorts of regulations on top of it. How... How am I supposed to keep the Sabbath? Well, you can't walk more than five miles. And so it's like, man, I've got like all these, I'm not exactly sure, um, you know, like all the ways in which I'm even violating the law of God. And so now I'm kind of feeling burdened. Like uh, there's like 600 laws in the, in the thing. And then this, this book of, of all these oral traditions, they study it all the time. And like, I, I'm not sure right now whether or not I'm, I'm, I'm disobeying the law of God. And meanwhile, the scribes are like, you guys are so unrighteous, you don't understand the law. You're not like us. We study it all the time. And, and he's like, you, you hypocrites, you don't do anything to relieve their burden. You don't even lift a finger to help them out. You just give them all these laws and regulations, and then now they're burdened even more on their conscience because you haven't pointed them to the, 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 the source of, of righteousness is not in their keeping of all these stupid rules that you come up with. 
And in fact, you've got all the things that you can figure out how to get by these because you know all the little things that some rabbi comes up with says, well, you know, of course you can't walk more than a Sabbath day journey on the Sabbath, which is like maybe five or six miles. But if you leave a personal item kind of halfway in between the thing, like say you left a toothbrush there the day before and you walk to the toothbrush, now you're at a thing. Now you can go another Sabbath day journey. See, you're good. You're still within the law. You're still righteous. And they, all, they know all the loopholes. And meanwhile, everybody else is just left um, under this burden, thinking these people are righteous. They're always, they're never, they're, they're hardly having to repent of anything because they're coming up with all these ways in which they think they're keeping the law. This is one of the reasons why um, when Jesus comes, comes and says, you've heard it said and all these other things in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he's pointing out like, all of that stuff is complete garbage. Man, you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. All these things that you think that you've done to kind of keep, keep yourselves from transgressing by these dumb rules that you've come up with to say, as long as you go this far and not that far, you're okay. You haven't committed adultery, you know? As long as you, you know, as long as you uh, 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 do this, you're not really, um, you're not really committing murder. You're just, you're just, is if if you just hate somebody, it's okay. But you know you can't do this or that. Um, and so he he's condemning this. And then he said the next woe is he says you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. You know here they think you know what man the people of God in the past they were so evil they would constantly kill the prophets and all this other stuff they were always against the prophets but we're going to honor the prophets we're going to build these tombs for them and yet here comes the prophet the prophet with a capital p Christ and he's the one whom all the prophets before represented they were they they he's the one that they are all kind of like just shadows of this great prophet and who are they against? They're against the prophets. This is the, the constant theme of God's people. They're against the, 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 the person that God sends to speak with them. You're too serious. You're too whatever. And whatever it is, they're always against them. They have some reason why it is. And so all of this, all of these, these uh, memorials to the prophets are, are a complete sham is what Jesus is saying. He says, from the blood of Abel to that of Zechariah, you guys have killed all the prophets. And you may know Abel is the first person that's killed in the uh, Old Testament by his brother um, out of jealousy, out of the fact that Cain had thought he had offered a sacrifice, but it wasn't a sacrifice of faith. He just kind of went through the motions. And then Zechariah the reason you may wonder why Zechariah is mentioned because he's not the last prophet in our Old Testament, but he is in the way that they organized their scriptures was Chronicles is actually the last book in terms of the order of their books. And we can talk about that offline if you want to understand that. But the point is he's kind of going from, from end to end, you guys have killed the prophets and you're, you're doing it right now. You're against God's prophets. You think you're righteous, you're against God's prophets. And, that, and, and so then the, the final, the sixth curse against this group is he goes, he says, you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not, um, you did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. 
he, they're pointing them in the right and wrong direction. The key of knowledge is Christ himself. They're pointing away from him. They're, they're constantly rejecting him. They think themselves righteous. Christ has come to save sinners. They don't consider themselves sinners. They make fun of sinners. They make fun of Jesus for being the friend of sinners. And they're doing everything in their power to basically oppose him. And so what's their response? Is their response six curses, by the way. Is their response, man, I should, I should really think about this because, you know, he's, he's basically entered a woe against me. No, they double down. They're like, man, we're going to destroy this dude. We are going to totally destroy him. We're, we're, we're going to do everything in our power to, to, come up, to, to stop him. Let's start putting our heads together in, way, in a way that we can catch him in something that he's saying. So they're blind, they're blind guides. They're so blind they can't even see that all they're doing is doubling down and, and making their... And when Jesus says, this generate, all, the, all, of these, all of these things, all of this wickedness will be required of this generation is because Jesus being the culmination of all this prophecy, all of this opposition to God's word is is sort of like the light is as bright as it's ever been in redemptive history. Everything that, that God's prophets represented is standing right in front of them, and they're so blind they can't see it, and it's only that much more judgment because they have far less excuse than those who came before them. And so we continue on in verse 1 of chapter 12. He said, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, that they were um, trampling one another, he began to say to, to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or um, hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private in private rooms, shall be, um, shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. So this is a warning to his disciples. Basically after this, it's like, hey, you know, uh, beware of this spirit of the Pharisees and the scribes, essentially hypocrisy. Be wary of the idea that you can ever think that like, that, that you can come up with some way to deal with the fact that you're a guilty sinner and come up with some way that you think, I'm hiding this or I'm somehow covering it up with either actions or, or excuses or even I can do this and get away with it. This is a, this is a, this is a, a soul-stealing, a, 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 a very, it's, it's one of those things that is a danger to anybody. And the Pharisees and the scribes have perfected it. In fact, what the law should have revealed to them and as they were reading through these things is the necessity for God's grace because it's plain throughout the scriptures, God doesn't just hint, he shouts from the rooftops, you are not righteous enough to keep my laws perfectly as a means for me to accept you. You are accepted 
by my gracious hand, you are my people, and now walk in that and trust in me but may, and, and, and be repenting of your sins, but you can't possibly uh, maintain your relationship with me by your righteousness. Your relationship w- with me will be maintained by my faithfulness to you, and what I expect of you is to, be, um, to recognize yourself as sinners in need of me and repentant of me, re- repentant to me. And so what, what can happen, though, is that if you misread that and you say, well, the way that I'm going to achieve life and to achieve God is I'm going, to, I'm going to build my way up to God. I'm going to climb my way up to God by my righteousness. Then ultimately what you have to do is you have to deceive yourself into thinking that you're actually righteous. You have to come up with these things to kind of cover up to conceal the fact that you're not making it. And you can even intellectually convince yourself of these things. But even if you haven't, um, we, like to, we like to pretend like we're righteous. We like to pretend like we're, we're very holy. Um, and when we come to church, we like to put on the illusion that we haven't possibly um, sinned before God or we're, we're, we're righteous people and we don't want to um, give any indication to people that there's nothing um, in us that's, um, that's, that's wicked and that sort of thing. I think, you know, I've been counseling somebody very close to me recently on this. I think that one of the things that, and I, I want to make sure each of you hears this, that it's very easy for you to think of yourself as the only sinner in the room because it looks to you like everybody has things together and it seems as if... Um, either your friends or you are, n- are the only ones that could possibly have um, thoughts of, about certain wicked things or even give, have given into certain wicked things to the point where it can become very debilit- debilitating in terms of, um, in der- in terms of uh, the shame, the guilt, the feeling that no Christian could possibly ever have these thoughts come into their head. Now, you can do a couple of things with that. You can, you can go the route of, say, like um, Judaism did, or even Roman Catholicism did, that um, still does, where you kind of say, well, if you only thought about it, you're not really, you're not really crossing a line. But, you know, you've got these gradients. But when you actually see yourself as understanding that you're still a sinner and you're, you're facing those sorts of things, then you also understand that even if you are a Christian, then the heart of wickedness that's within, or the, 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 the remaining sin that's within you still tempts you to do things, still leads you in certain ways. And, and, it's, and, and you should have this realization that this this sinful state still is a battle within you, and so you shouldn't be crushed by the fact that you're the only one dealing with that sin. And that, that, that's an important thing for all of us, that we not be hypocrites about that, to think that we're the only ones who are, or, or to, to pretend like we're not um, struggling with sin, or to pretend like we're not sinners. And I think this has incredible, um, you, those of you who are parents, um, this has an ama- this has a very profound effect on your children if they never see you repent of something because you are an, you are a very important thing to them because you're the one to whom the law has been given in a way that's kind of unquestioned at a certain age and if your children just think of you as thinking of yourself as righteous all the time then eventually they're going to figure out that you're not 
and they're going to see through that if you've never kind of uh, if you if if they never see in you a repentant heart for your own sins they never see in that they think that you represent Christianity itself at a certain point or what it means to be a Christian is to know that you're right unrighteous but then to act as if you are in all situations and, and this is one of the reasons why sometimes not because of you as parents or something like I'm not trying to load on the guilt in this case this isn't a guilt sermon and we're going to get to the whole gospel thing here in a second. But for a moment, feel the weight of, as we all experience our, uh, our, the weight of our own sense of hypocrisy. I mean, I have to preach um, before you on hypocrisy. And I'm like thinking, man, am I like, am I like casting woes against myself, right? Am I, am I, am I a hypocrite? And in fact, um, years ago, R.C. Sproul um, said that when he was um, uh, created this book, Questions Answered, and he said uh, that this, this evangelistic program called Evangelism Explosion, they had kind of come up with the 10 most uh, popular reasons why people refuse to be Christian. And the first one was like the church is full of hypocrites. And it's really not true. Um, but in some ways, people feel that that's the case. There are hypocrites in the church, don't get me wrong. There are those that pretend to be righteous and don't, um, don't acknowledge themselves to be sinners and repent. And they put on a, they put on a good front. In fact, um, in some places, it's almost like the worst thing you can say is that you're a Christian businessman because it's almost like you're one way in you're one way in church and you're putting on this thing, you're, this facade, but then, you know, you're not really reputable when it comes to the way that you conduct your business. I'm not saying that everybody who's a Christian businessman is that, that way. I'm saying that there is a tendency sometimes for people to almost think that they can act um, in a disreputable fashion in their business just because they, they put a placard on that. Um, but for the most part, Christians are those who acknowledge themselves sinners or should. And the fact is, is that when you come in here to this church, you should have the expectation that you're worshiping with other sinners. That when we come up and say it's time to confess our sins, this time of confession isn't like, for those of you who are sinners, I want you to start confessing your sin right now. We all come to come to this point at the time of worship um, when we come to that time to confession of sins because we are sinners and what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves of that because it's at that, that point that God meets us in Christ and says, um, come to me and we, and we confess our sins and then we, we remember and we, 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 we turn again in faith to Christ and we continue to acknowledge ourselves to, as sinners by Christ's power, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, turning from them, and then looking to Christ to um, for the not only the uh, forgive, forgiveness of our sins, but for the, the 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 strangling of the power of sin within our lives. And so we're not all hypocrites, but we do need to be wary of that. And so what? How how does this? Let's just kind of wrap things up here. What I want to make sure you understand is what we have here is if you counted them out, or I was trying to count them out, there were essentially six woes that were given to the Pharisees and scribes. Christ is, is giving woes to those who are hypocrites. Those who are hypocrites in any system that would not acknowledge themselves sinners 
in need of salvation from the only one who is the only mediator between God and man, the only one who, who could ever fulfill righteousness, the only one who could ever stand before a holy God and not be consumed in, in, in just condemnation. And those of us who are in Christ are in that, that situation. But there's six, right? And if you know something about um, the scriptures, seven is kind of the the perfect number. It's the thing that, that represents completeness. And so there's almost a sense in which there's an invitation here. There's an invitation that there is a curse that can be, there, there is a place where all these curses can go. And Christ is the one whom hangs on a tree and cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so Christ is the curse, is the one to whom all of these curses can go. In fact, you know, even on the, on the, on the cross, he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And there is, there is a, a way out for those who are hypocrites. It's not as if Christ is saying, now be better. It's, an, it's, an, it's, it's something that Christ is going to going to fulfill. This isn't a this isn't an invitation for you to start coming up with ways to 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 think of all the things that you need to do better apart from Christ and be a better Christian. It's an invitation to begin by if you if you think of yourself as in in as given hypocrisy over things or the fact that you don't you don't repent of your sins, today is the day to hear these things. For Christ himself says the invitation here, remember, the, um, the Pharisees and the scribes are putting burdens on the people. You feel burdened by your sin. You feel burdened by the curse. You feel burdened by your hypocrisy. Christ says in, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ came into the world not to condemn, beloved, because the world was already condemned. Now, you can add to that condemnation. You can build upon it. You can kind of try and come up with any kind of religious system you want to think you're going to build your way up to to God. But God has already provided the solution for that in sending the Son in human flesh to accomplish righteousness for unworthy service, unworthy sinners. While we were yet dead in our sins and trespasses, while we were yet objects of God's wrath, the Father so loved us to send the Son of God into the world, and the Son willingly came to receive sinners, to receive hypocrites, to receive people who who couldn't possibly conceive that they could ever undo the things that they've done, that that, that God could possibly ever accept somebody as wicked as them, that they think of themselves as the worst of all possible sinners in the world because all the times that they've done things that they promised to God they would never do, that they'd be afraid to share with their friends, they'd be afraid to share with the church how how, the the things that they've thought or the things that they've, they've given into, none of that surprises God. None of that that surprises Christ. He, re- he welcomes sinners into his bosom. He says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't, don't try to provide rest for your soul, souls by your, your eager doing. Come to me. Repent of your sins. Give it to me. I've taken it on the cross already. 
I've taken the full wrath of God for the sins of all who repent in me. And I have risen again that death could not hold me. Sin couldn't hold me down. All of that curse of your sin couldn't, couldn't kill me. It, it, I, I died willingly for it. And now I have, it couldn't hold me down. I have risen again to give you new life in me and, and, and to trust in me. And so believe this gospel. If you are heavy and laden down by your guilt and sin, turn to Christ for the salvation of your souls. Let us pray.